The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4, The Medieval World. Episode 38, The Battle of Asuf. In the last episode of the History of the World podcast, we told the story of the Battle of Hattin. The Battle of Hattin took place just to the west of the Sea of Galilee in the modern country of Israel. This episode discusses a battle which took place four years after, once again in the lands of the modern country of Israel but on this occasion near the coast, around 50 miles southwest from Hattin. The site of Tel Arshaf is a high point overlooking the Mediterranean Sea, but even though it may have been an attractive vantage point, there is little evidence of a settlement before the middle of the first millennium BCE. It is very evident that human activity existed in this area of the world, for as long as human beings first ventured into this area, and this would have been due to the fertility and resources of the land here. A rich ancient trade network would have certainly gone through this area, and it is difficult to imagine that this site may not have been put to use, which makes it all the more surprising not to find an earlier settlement. If it is truly the case that this site was not in use before this period, it may be because sites such as Kisaria and Jaffa were favoured instead. Its time would come during the period of the Achaemenid Persians, when it appears, according to archaeology, that its usage became truly evident. As we mentioned, there was significant human activity in this area before the Achaemenid Persian period. And our previous episodes on the siege of Jerusalem during the First Crusade and the aforementioned Battle of Hattin will explain the history of Israel and Jerusalem in more detail. But we will spare repeating ourselves and move forward from this point. The settlement that did emerge in this area was referred to by the name Apollonia, which is a distinctly Greek name. Some historians suggest that this means that the settlement was established by Phoenicians rather than Persians, but it is all supposition. We do know that this area fell to Alexander the Great of Macedon, which ushered in the Hellenistic period, and therefore it would make sense for the port town to be referred to by a Greek name in this case. The port town developed over time to become an important centre of trade and general commercial activities believed to have prospered and in particular when the Romans took control of the Levant. Due to its eastern location within the wider Roman Empire, the town would quite naturally become a part of the eastern half of the Roman Empire that would become what we refer to as the Byzantine Empire and at some point during this time the town's name would change from Apollonia to Sozusa in Palestina. The lands of the Levant, similarly to those of Egypt, were always highly sought after and were often targeted by different nations and peoples. The Sasanian Persians attempted to take control of these areas of the Byzantine Empire and for a period at the start of the 7th century they were successful meaning that Sozuza in Palestina became a part of the Persian Empire, at least until the Byzantines reconquered the Levant. The expansion of the Rashidun Caliphate from the south into the lands of Syria and the Levant meant that the city would once again change hands. And this could also be when the name Asuf may have been used due to it being an Arabic name. 
there was a large Samaritan population within the city at this time of the conquest. Samaritanism is closely linked to Judaism. The Rashidun Caliphate gave way for the Umayyad Caliphate and then, in turn, to the Abbasid Caliphate. The Abbasid Caliphate started out as a powerful nation-state when it took control of the Caliphate, but over time the Abbasids would become weaker and their existence was only spared due to its holy bloodline connection with the Prophet Muhammad's family. Two major expansions into the Levant were made by two Mamluk dynasties operating from Egypt. Firstly, it was the Tulunids, and then it was the Ikhshidids. The Ikhshidids were conquered by their African neighbours, the Fatimids, and so the region changed hands yet again. During the 11th century, the Arab dynasty of the Jarahids continued to harass the Levantine lands of the Fatimids until the rise and expansion of the nation of the Seljuk Turks targeted these Levantine lands during the 1070s. When the Seljuk Turks took control of Jerusalem, Christian pilgrimages to the city were quite dangerous and after the Byzantines called for help following Seljuk aggressions against themselves, the Pope Urban II called for support in order to reclaim Jerusalem from the Seljuk Turks. This prompted the First Crusade to the Holy Land, but by the time the Crusaders reached Jerusalem, the Fatimids had won Jerusalem back from the Seljuks, so the Crusaders successfully battled the Fatimids for control of the city. Now, Asuf was a part of the Kingdom of Jerusalem established by the Crusaders. The Kingdom of Jerusalem was able to defend itself throughout most of the 12th century. The Fatimids certainly couldn't get back into the Levant after this time and the Seljuk lands of the Middle East started to fragment under the rule of different dynasties. The Zengids took control of Mosul, Aleppo, Damascus and the Outremer city of Edessa. But the status of the Kingdom of Jerusalem remained somewhat unaffected. But this was about to change with the replacement of the Fatimids in Egypt by a new regime called the Ayyubids. Ayyubids The Ayyubid dynasty was named after an ethnically Kurdish statesman to the Zengids called Najm al-Din Ayyub. But it was his son who put the Ayyubids on the world map during the 12th century. The Fatimid Caliphate in Egypt descended into a precarious position as the 12th century progressed, but both the Kingdom of Jerusalem and the Zengids became involved in the politics of Egypt. The Jerusalemites were keen to turn the Ismaili Shia Fatimid state into an extension of Christian Outremer while the Zengids were keen to turn it towards the Sunni Islam promoted by the Abbasid Caliphate. The son of Ayyub, who we know as Saladin, emerged after a period of turbulent Fatimid politics as the most influential man in Egypt, and as such he would fill the void left by the untimely death of the last Fatimid Caliph. Saladin would move to take control of Egypt, establishing the Ayyubid Sultanate. From this point, the Ayyubids worked to take control of the Hejaz and all the way down to Yemen along the east coast of the Red Sea. Perhaps even more impressive was that in the following decade, the 1180s, they subjugated the states who opened the door of opportunity for them by sending them to Egypt in the first place, namely the Zengids. This meant that the Ayyubids near enough had the whole of Outremer geographically surrounded. The fact that the Ayyubids had to cross through Outremer-held lands to cross from Egypt to Syria and vice versa caused an issue when one of the local governors attacked an Ayyubid caravan after becoming sick 
of Ayyubid's pillaging within his territory. This was the justification that the Ayyubids needed to launch an attack on the kingdom of Jerusalem and after dealing the Jerusalemites a crushing defeat at the Battle of Hattin in 1187, the Ayyubids were able to take city after city including the capital city of Jerusalem itself, leaving the kingdom of Jerusalem to be pinned to a small territory on the coast. This would be a serious concern for the Franks, the papacy and their religious allies back in Europe and a third crusade to the Holy Land would be prepared for. Angevins The Angevin dynasty finds its origins in the 9th century in a man called Angelge who was the first count of the county of Anjou a landlocked county in the southwest corner of the modern country of France. The county was established after a period of unrest between Franks and Viking raiders. Over the course of the 10th and 11th centuries, the county of Anjou would be at the centre of the tetchy politics of northern France, where the various counties and dukedoms would often be battling with each other. The Normans were to their north, becoming quite powerful, especially after their famous conquest of England in 1066. The Count of Anjou from 1106 was Fulk V, also known as Fulk the Young. Fulk would have four children by his first wife, including Geoffrey and Matilda. Anjou was quite a wealthy county by this time and it was being sized up for political marriages. The Norman king, Henry I of England, wanted his own son, William, to be married to Fulk's daughter, Matilda, but William died in a shipping accident before any marriage could take place. Henry I had plenty of other children, but the only remaining legitimate one was his daughter, Matilda, so Henry believed that the best move was to marry his daughter to Falk's son, Geoffrey. The biggest proposal for a marriage alliance was not with Falk's children, but it would be with Falk himself. As his first wife had passed away, an opportunity existed for the wealthy Falk to be approached by the King of Jerusalem, Baldwin II, who wished to secure a healthy future for Jerusalem, by marrying his eldest daughter, Melisande, to Fulk. So Fulk would leave Anjou and travel east to become the king of Jerusalem. The county of Anjou was passed to his son, Geoffrey, who would rule as Geoffrey V and who would also be known as Geoffrey Plantagenet. The new king of England was King Stephen, nephew of King Henry I and therefore the cousin of Matilda. There was a period of dispute over the crown of England between Stephen and Matilda which resulted in a civil war called the Anarchy. Matilda's husband, Geoffrey Plantagenet, took the opportunity to take the Duchy of Normandy away from Stephen and add it to the Angevin lands, which in other words means the extended imperial reach of Anjou. When Geoffrey died in 1151, the county of Anjou passed to Henry, his son by his wife Matilda. Henry married the Duchess of Aquitaine, Eleanor, whose first marriage with the crusader King Louis VII of France had been annulled. Henry would have multiple enemies during this period. The Angevin imperial reach had now extended to include Aquitaine, which was a huge concern for France under King Louis and England under King Stephen. Henry would defend his realms and travel to England to force Stephen to proclaim him as his heir to the throne of England and this did indeed happen on Stephen's death in 1154. 
Under the rule of Henry II, the Angevin Empire, that had originated from the county of Anjou in France, now extended to the modern border with Spain in the south and included the entire western half of France and the Kingdom of England. Henry II was a strong king and by Eleanor he would have a number of children. As we are aware, Henry's wife's former husband was King Louis VII of France. Henry and Louis were enemies of each other as Louis would look to defend his French possessions and subjects from Angevin expansionism. When Henry's children began to come of age, many would start to rebel against their father in their concern that they would not be granted what they believed that they were entitled to, and to make matters worse, their mother, Eleanor, would support their revolt. One of those children was Richard, who was due to inherit Aquitaine, the duchy of his mother. Saladin We spoke of Saladin during our episode on the Battle of Hattin. Saladin would not necessarily have been expected to rise to greatness when the Zengids sent him with his uncle to Egypt to influence the politics of the crumbling Fatimid Caliphate during the 1160s. The original purpose was to preserve a Fatimid regime that was favourable to the Zengids. But as time went by, it became clearer that the best way to ensure that Fatimid Egypt was compliant was to undermine the ruling class and to take control. Saladin proved his worth as a capable military statesman while in Fatimid Egypt and undoubtedly won supporters. The vizier, who was the chief politician in Egypt, died, followed by Saladin's uncle and then the young Fatimid Caliph, leaving the door wide open for Saladin to take control of Egypt, end the Fatimid Caliphate and instate the Ayyubid dynasty with himself at the forefront. Saladin was a pious man and an advocate of Sunni Islam. By conquest of Egypt, he would take the nation of Shia Islam over to his ideological preference, Sunni Islam. The Zengids may have considered this to be an extension of Zengid influence, but Saladin viewed himself as the most capable leader of the Sunni Islamic nations and saw no reason why he should bow down to the Zengids. Saladin may have had ambitions to create a Sunni Islamic superstate and he would start by taking control of the Zengid capitals of Damascus and Aleppo, while Mosul became a vassal state. The Abbasid Caliphate would recognise Saladin and his extended Ayyubid territories. Saladin was in control of Egypt and Syria, but his caravans would have to travel through the Crusader state-held land of Ultra-Jordan, when the governor of Ultra-Jordan approved an attack of an Ayyubid caravan, Saladin made it clear that he would take his revenge. Saladin attacked the kingdom of Jerusalem and dealt the armies of Outremer a crushing blow that would open a door for Saladin to besiege and conquer many of the cities of Outremer, including the city of Jerusalem, which was almost helpless to defend itself after the disastrous Battle of Hattin in 1187. The remains of the Kingdom of Jerusalem was pinned to the coast, and the loss of Jerusalem to Muslim hands would send a shockwave across Europe. Richard I of England When Richard was born in 1157, he was not the eldest son of Henry II, King of England, and his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine. As such, he was not raised with the intention of becoming the King of England. Instead, he would be groomed to take control of his mother's domain of Aquitaine. This would only help to maintain Richard's strong relationship with his mother. It would be Richard's older brother, known to history as Henry the Young King, who would be prepared 
for becoming the King of England. But Henry did not want to wait to be king and revolted against his father Henry II. Just how much of Eleanor of Aquitaine's influence came into Henry's revolt against his father is unknown, but we do know that Henry the young king gravitated towards the French king, Eleanor's first husband, Louis VII, who was Henry II's bitter rival. The fact that Richard joined in his brother's revolt against his father possibly demonstrated that the sons felt that they didn't want to wait for their father to allocate the wealth of the Angevin Empire and that they were ready to take their spoils sooner rather than later. Incredibly, Henry was able to contain the revolt and Eleanor was imprisoned by her husband to ensure Richard's good behaviour. Richard was never really too enthusiastic when it came to being told what to do. When his older brother, Henry the Young King, died of dysentery at the age of 28, Richard would become the heir to the throne of England. His father would demand that Richard give up Aquitaine to his younger brother John, and he refused. Richard would once again stand against his father and ally himself with the King of France, now Louis VII's son, Philip II. The situation remained so until the death of Henry II when Richard became King Richard of England. His mother, Eleanor, would be freed from her imprisonment. Now that Richard was the King of England, the nature of his relationship with Philip II would change to one of distrust, as they would both be concerned about the other's intentions towards their territories. Before Henry II's death in 1189, Saladin had taken Jerusalem and this prompted both Henry II and Philip II to agree that a new crusade was necessary. Richard appears to have been the most enthusiastic to join this crusade and the death of his father would not change his intention. Richard agreed with Philip that they would crusade together. Prelude to the battle. A strong-willed Richard set off for the Holy Land with Philip. Their journey was far from straightforward and took a number of months while they overwintered on the island of Sicily. Here, Richard fell out with Philip, causing Philip to choose to travel to the Holy Land on his own. Richard then moved on to Byzantine Cyprus, which he conquered before selling it to the Knights Templar. Richard then moved on to the coastal city of Acre in the Levant. Acre had fallen to Saladin and the Ayyubids in the wake of the Battle of Hattin in 1187. The Crusaders, under the King of Jerusalem, Guy of Lusignan, had been besieging the city since August 1189. Philip II of France arrived in April 1191, having headed off to the Holy Land without waiting for Richard. Richard would eventually arrive in June, and his arrival proved to be the weight that tipped the scales in the Crusaders' favour. The Crusaders reclaimed Acre, and Richard attempted to negotiate a prisoner exchange with Saladin. The negotiation did not go smoothly, so Richard executed all of his Muslim prisoners, prompting Saladin to execute all of his Christian prisoners. Richard's aim was the reconquest of Jerusalem, but Richard knew that in order to achieve this, that he would need to be able to accept supplies via sea routes, and due to this, he would have to head south and secure the port cities of Jaffa and Ascalon, which were two major Mediterranean ports that could supply an attack on the city of Jerusalem. This would involve a dangerous march south that would have to be conducted with care, strategy and discipline. A useful crusader stronghold along this route would be the fortified settlement at Asuf. So Richard would look to secure this position 
in order to plan an assault on Jaffa. Richard led the march from the front, leading the vanguard of the procession. It was not too long before Saladin's brother, Al-Adil, emerged from behind the procession and began attacking the crusader supply wagons. Richard had to stop the march and hurry back to rescue the rear of the procession, chasing the attackers away. After stopping over in Haifa, the march continued. Templars and Hospitallers guarded the front and the rear on this occasion. The naval supply boats were supplying the procession as it travelled parallel with the coast, meaning that it could only be attacked from one side. Those who were too weak to continue the journey were abandoned. Saladin's archers pestered the fringes of the marching crusaders, but the crusaders stayed disciplined in their measured march southwards, protected by their full body length chain mails. Richard periodically reorganised the ranks of his troops to prevent fatigue and allow those that had been exposed to archery attacks swap over to the comfort of the coastal side of the march. In the summer heat of August, the journey would not be one that everyone could survive. The Ayyubid archers may not have had a huge impact on the armoured infantry, but they would on the knight's horses, and those that fell were feasted upon by the hungry in their desperate will to survive. Richard would have his work cut out for him to maintain the discipline of his troops, especially as some were becoming increasingly impatient, begging Richard to allow them to charge the Ayyubids. Richard would do everything he could to maintain discipline and lift morale. Although it is easy to scrutinise the focus and morale of Richard's army, we should not forget the mood of Saladin's troops too. The laborious pace of the Crusaders' march had tested the patience and resources of the Ayyubid forces too, and Saladin faced similar challenges to Richard in terms of keeping control of his troops. When the Crusaders had to manoeuvre through the Wood of Asuf, an unusual area of forest, Saladin believed that he could attack the Crusaders under the cover of the trees. When Richard awoke on the 7th of September 1191, his scouts soon reported to him that Saladin's scouts were visible. Richard knew that an attack was imminent. The Battle of Asuf Richard organised his troops by putting the Knights Templar at his vanguard and the Knights Hospitaller at his rearguard. Different accounts give us a different perspective on what was going through Richard's mind when he was arranging his troops. Was it to ready himself for battle, or was it to continue his march? It is unlikely that Richard wanted to attack Saladin. His aim was the safety of Asuf, where he could buy the time to reinforce his army. Although some more romantic accounts paint a picture of Richard the Lionheart, bravely agreeing to attack Saladin's army. The most popular school of thought is that it was Saladin who attacked. His army was running out of patience and could not afford to allow Richard to reach the fortress at Asuf. Previously the Ayyubids had concentrated their archer attack on the Crusaders but now they would deploy their skirmishers for close quarters combat. They would be supported by the Ayyubid heavy cavalry and archers. Saladin wanted to break the discipline of Richard's ranks, but the Crusaders showed so much discipline that they were able to frustrate the Ayyubids. Specialist javelinists and mounted archers were also deployed to no consequential avail. The flanks of Richard's army did not break ranks. Saladin 
had the superior numbers and was not able to make a significant impact despite the diversity of skills within his troops, encompassing the various skills throughout the lands of the new Ayyubid Empire. Saladin was unlike Richard in the fact that he would look to avoid becoming directly involved, preferring to be a tactician from afar. Richard was always much more likely to be found in the thick of a battle. However, Saladin knew that his troops were weary after many days of waiting in the field for the battle and frustrated due to their lack of impact. So Saladin joined his son Alafdal in a change of focus. Together, they would lead an attack specifically to the rear of the procession where the hospitallers were stationed. Saladin was desperate to break the ranks of the procession in order to take advantage of his superior numbers and overwhelm the crusaders, but Richard was still able to inspire his troops to maintain their discipline and maintain their tightly packed ranks and even continue the shuffle forwards in the direction of Asuf. Nevertheless, the hospitallers were taking the brunt of the attack and their patience was wearing thin as they were suffering losses and feeling helpless to prevent them. Their instinct was telling them to attack the Ayyubids, but Richard was demanding that they continue to close ranks and get to Asuf, which was now close by. The Templars at the vanguard were now on the fringes of Asuf. Finally, it looked like the goal was achieved, but the hospitalers at the rearguard were now completely surrounded by the Ayyubids who had circled around their rear and were constantly bombarding them. Despite their pleas to Richard to allow them to retaliate, Richard insisted that the success of their march relied on the ranks remaining unbroken, despite the inevitable losses in the rearguard. The Templars were now at Asuf and began setting up their defences and encampments. And it just required the rest of the procession to successfully retreat into the settlement. The Ayyubids may be able to besiege Asuf, but at least the Crusaders would be in a defensible supply port. The leader of the Hospitallers was called the Grand Master, and his name was Garner de Nablu. He had sent messages to Richard to allow the Hospitallers to attack to no avail and he even decided to plea in person once again to no avail. Now, with the rearguard taking all of the attack, the Hospitallers could watch no more. They had seen enough of their worthy comrades being picked off without retaliation and their adrenaline and anger could no longer be contained. Garner de Nablu charged the Ayyubids and his fellow knights joined him in a rush against the enemy. Richard was horrified as his plan had almost worked but now it risked failure. Was the Hospitallers act avoidable under the intense circumstances and did it jeopardise the entire operation? Richard's nephew, Henry II, Count of Champagne, was an important leader of the flanks of the procession and had loyally maintained the discipline of the most vulnerable troops during the long march. Henry saw the charge of the rearguard and felt compelled to support them and so he ordered the charge, which Richard may not have endorsed, but now with so many of his troops committed, Richard felt he had absolutely no option but to order his entire army to charge the Ayyubids, despite their proximity to relative safety. From a disciplined, defensive slow march, very suddenly the Crusaders launched an attack that hit the Ayyubids like a battering ram with their full force. If Richard was forced to attack, and he would give them everything. It would be the right-hand flank of the Ayyubids who would buckle to the pressure first. Some would begin to flee in terror, 
and many would fearfully copy this action, frightened for their lives as a result of this unexpected onslaught. Richard was in the thick of it himself, demonstrating to many the heart of a lion that would eventually give him his eternal soubriquet. Saladin desperately tried to restore order to his troops. Understanding that many had fled, he pulled his elite guard in close and attempted to restore the balance of the battle. But the fury of the crusaders was too much and Saladin had to concede that it was too much to overcome. Saladin ordered the retreat and as the remaining troops fled, the Knights Templar fiercely pursued them from the battlefield. However, before his army could stray too far from the safety of Asuf, Richard recalled them and he would be safe to do so as Saladin and the Ayyubids had now gone and the battle was over. Aftermath Looking back on the amazing ascent of Saladin since establishing the Ayyubid dynasty in Egypt, it must have seemed at times that he was unbeatable. Successfully taking control of Syria and then taking control of Jerusalem, it was one-way traffic until the arrival of Richard the Lionheart in the Levant. Firstly, the siege of Acre had been broken by the Crusaders before the attack on the Crusader procession at Asuf was resisted with a successful counter-attack. These were Saladin's first major defeats. These were also the legacy-making achievements of Richard I of England, cementing his soubriquet, Richard the Lionheart, in the memory of history. Certainly, his and his army's achievements at the Battle of Asif was a demonstration of determination, discipline and bravery. This also enhanced the reputation of Saladin, as he is seen as a master tactician whose actions in instigating the Battle of Asif effectively prevented Richard from achieving his goal of conquering Jerusalem. The Battle of Asif was only a defensive victory for the Crusaders. Both Richard and Saladin have gone down in history as two of the greatest military leaders. Richard did eventually take Jaffa and Ascalon, albeit the remains after Saladin had razed both locations to make them less effective. The Crusaders would struggle to advance on Jerusalem during the cold winter and Saladin would struggle to maintain a sizeable army for any length of time. Richard may have been able to take Jerusalem, but it was likely to have resulted in a Pyrrhic victory when considering the cost of his resources in capturing it and then subsequently defending it. The reality was that with Philip II back home in France after abandoning the crusade after the siege of Acre, Richard would need to head back to Europe to protect his home interests. The third crusade was over in 1192 and an exhausted Saladin retreated to Damascus, both physically and financially exhausted. He passed away in his mid-fifties the following year. Richard had made a truce with Saladin that would at least allow Christian pilgrims to travel peacefully to Jerusalem. But Outremer was now just a coastal strip of land of the Levant. Richard's journey home was a disaster. He was captured while in the Holy Roman Empire and the Holy Roman Emperor Henry VI demanded a huge amount of money for Richard's release. When Richard finally returned home, his insatiable desire for battle caused him to resume hostilities with Philip II of France until he was fatally injured during a siege of a castle. He died in 1199 at the age of 41. After Saladin's death, Ayyubid power declined as Saladin had gathered his army in a stole that is comparable to feudalism where the wealthiest families offered troops for limited periods of time, 
but these wealthy families felt that they could do better for themselves and started vying for more control, which caused fractures throughout the Ayyubid Empire that Saladin had worked so hard to create. Although Ayyubid descendants ruled various lands in the Middle East for many generations, often as vassals to larger nations, the centre of Ayyubid control in Egypt fell to the Mamluks in the middle of the 13th century. After Richard's death, with no children, the crown of England passed down to his younger brother, John. John proved to be no match for the abilities of King Philip II of France, and the vast majority of the French lands of the Angevin Empire were lost, including his grandfather's county of Anjou. English occupation of continental lands continued throughout the 13th and 14th centuries until the conclusion of the Hundred Years' War between England and France, which concluded with England just having control of a territory on the north coast at Calais, before this was eventually taken by the French during the 16th century. The remains of the Crusader states in the Levant did not last so long, however, with the final vestiges falling to Muslim Mamluk regimes at the conclusion of the 13th century. Richard the Lionheart's gift of the island of Cyprus to the Crusader states during the Third Crusade meant that the descendants of the King of Jerusalem, Guy of Lusignan, ruled Cyprus all the way through to the end of the 15th century when the island was taken over by the Phoenicians. Thank you very much for listening to this week's podcast episode about the Battle of Arsuf. Um, a really wonderful story and um, quite, uh, as I've, I've said in previous uh, week's episodes, um, each battle episode has its own unique story to tell with its own unique set of circumstances and its own unique set of uh, cause and effect. And... Um, we um, we really should, uh, you know, celebrate these episodes as being brilliant insights into some of the great military strategists of history as well, and uh, no less so than Richard the Lionheart and Saladin. Um, so it was a real pleasure to tell this story. It was a good fun episode to uh, to research as well. So thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode and want to support the History of the World podcast, you can. Just go to the History of the World podcast.com website, click on the Patreon link and uh, sign up to make a monthly contribution. Those of you who do make monthly contributions can accrue the right to receive rewards. And uh, this might be just a shout out during the podcast episode, uh, a gift pack um, or even mugs, T-shirts and the right to um, commission an episode on the subject of your choice. So really are great rewards and uh, you become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. So don't waste your time. Go there now. The Ancient World Cup. The Ancient World Cup. It's a weekly competition where we a vote for who we like to advance out of 64 teams originally. We're looking to boil that down to one winner. And each week we knock out a team and uh, we look to see who advances. Now, this week was the second match in the round of 16. And uh, it was a fascinating one this week. It was the Britons versus the Franks. Well, all the votes have been counted up and we know the results. Of course, the Britons were the... Uh, the uh, the residents of the British Isles when the Romans invaded and uh, the Franks, well, uh, their original story was uh, a co- uh, sort of coalescence of, of tribes in, uh, in the north of, of France and Belgium um, as, it is, uh, as it is seen as today and uh, which resulted in King, King Clovis uh, creating uh, a Merovingian dynasty of Frankish um, societies that were the pre- they were the precursor to France uh, and Germany fundamentally. 
Um, so the votes were counted up. 57 of you voted. Thank you very much for 57 votes this week. And uh, the winner uh, with 58% of the vote and going through to the quarterfinals are the Franks. So we say goodbye to the Britons. Um, they've had a good run, but they're no longer with us. Uh, with 42% of the vote, they are out of the competition. The Franks will go through to the quarterfinals where they will meet the Macedonians. Now, this week, um, another match um, between two more uh, round of 16 qualifiers. Uh, it will be the Babylonians versus the ancient Egyptians. I suppose that the biggest thing that we can recognise the Babylonians for uh, is the law code of Hammurabi. But of course, there were there were many different guises of the Babylonians. We could go right the way through to the Babylonians who um, who destroyed the Temple of Jerusalem and uh, exiled many of the, the Jews uh, from the city uh, until they were ultimately, or the Babylonians were ultimately conquered by the Achaemenid Persians. Uh, the ancient Egyptians, well, what can we say? Those huge pyramids and those uh, two millennia of, uh, of dynasties that uh, dominated um, our history books uh, for that period of time. So the Babylonians versus the ancient Egyptians. Uh, voting will start uh, on Monday. And you can vote through the Facebook page for the History of the World podcast, the Twitter account, uh, the Instagram page, and the unofficial Facebook History of the World fan group. So four places there you can go and cast your vote. So don't forget to check in on us from Monday evening. Listener messages and reviews. We received an email this week um, from Cameron Pond, who's put, hello, uh, hi there, I am a 48-year-old man living in New Zealand with a wife and two young children. I work shifts and am quite busy. I'm up to Volume 1, Episode 10, and find that your podcast brings calm and perspective to my daily life. I heard you say that you worry about your accent. I think your accent is great and nice to listen to. I also enjoy the little reverb introductions and the music. I find your sense of humour very amusing and often smile at the understated way it presents itself. Thank you for helping me learn. Kind regards, Cameron. P.S. Is there anything coming up beyond Volume 1, Episode 10 about New Zealand? If not, do you think uh, you would ever have the resources to present a timeline about the Moriori and the Maori population of uh, Uteroa, I'm sorry if I've mispronounced that, I believe that's the Maori name for New Zealand, isn't it? I only learnt that recently as well. I see in the newspaper today that an Australian scientist, uh, Dr Magdalena Bunbury, has dated Maori arrival back to the 13th century, which is earlier than previously thought. Well, Cameron, firstly, thank you for taking the time to write into the podcast. Always like uh, reading out your messages uh, when you write in, uh, all you hot worlders. Um, yes, absolutely. Um, this is a volume, volume four, where we introduce the New Zealand story. Uh, and uh, we look more specifically at the Maori who uh, originally occupied, uh, or the, ma the first major society to occupy the island but it's going to be quite deep into um volume four the current volume that we're on um probably uh in the latter half of the year 2023 we're going to be um looking at new zealand along with easter island and austronesian expansion in general uh, before we get there we've got to cover the late medieval period of Europe. So there's going to be plenty more battles. And, you know, we talk about the Black Death and the Hundred Years' War, um, along with a lot of other things. And then we've got to go to India and catch up with the story in India, uh, Japan, Korea, China, um, and then a few uh, other battles. We've got to we've got to look at uh, Genghis Khan and, and the Mongol Empire and the travels of Marco Polo, um, the introduction of gunpowder into the into the world, 
Uh, and then we've got to look at uh, Southeast Asia and Indochina, uh, in other words, and the societies that began to emerge in that area. So there's so much that we've got to fit in. Uh, New Zealand at the moment, we're looking at episode 83, but that could change uh, depending on what we do or don't do uh, between now and then. So the schedule is episode 83, but we'll see how close we are to that. It's going to be, you know, we're going to be knocking on the door of 100 episodes in this volume. So it's a, it's a big, long jaunt. But um, New Zealand, very much a feature of that journey. Um, we got a review this week from John Vervallen uh, from the USA, who's put uh, five stars. Great podcast. USA here. This is a great pod, and while I finished up with Ramsey's profile, I have a long way to go. I find the information very enlightening and look forward to the upcoming ones. Keep up the great work. Well, listen, everyone, uh, don't forget to rate and review the podcast. Don't forget to send me your messages. I'll, of course, read the, read the best ones out. And uh, don't forget to consider making a financial contribution through the Patreon website. So just go and look for me, History of the World Podcast on Patreon, and uh, and sign up to make a monthly contribution. Go and see what rewards you can earn for yourself by doing so. Anyway, that's it for another week. Uh, next week, a switch of focus slightly. We're going to stay in the same era, um, and we're going to still be talking about Crusading Kings, but we're going to be looking at the Battle of Legnano, which uh, is very fundamental for the Italian story. And um, so we were going to be looking at, um, it's probably a continuation um, of the uh, the conflicts between the papacy and the Holy Roman Empire that led to those um, those battles between the Guelphs and the uh, Ghibellines in, uh, in northern Italy. So that's a, a really fundamental battle in the for, formation of, of the country of Italy, you should say, or maybe the, the national uh, psyche of Italy. So um, that will be next week. Until then, thanks for listening and be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast.com at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.